This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Russ Roberts, who is perhaps America's premier popular economist. Russ has a podcast, Econ Talk, and has had it for many years. He has written on economics and liberty in a number of forums, books on public policy, economics, novels, poetry, and even rap. A three-time teacher of the year at George Mason University, Russ Roberts is now at Stanford. Russ, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Great to be with you, Mark. I love your chosen passage, which is uh, from Genesis 44, the first several verses of Genesis 44. So please tell us what happens there and why it's so significant to you. So we have to have some of the, the backstory is necessary to really understand what happens here. The backstory is that Jacob has 12 sons. He has a daughter, too. But the 12 sons are the centerpiece of this part of the story. And they come from a variety of uh, moms, uh, the most important being Rachel's sons, who are Joseph and, and Benjamin. And Rachel is the most beloved of the two formal wives that Jacob has. He also has some handmaidens who he has children with. But Rachel and Leah have this rivalry. Uh, Leah is very fertile, but she's the second fiddle to Rachel's uh, love that Jacob has for her. And so this sets up a tragic story that the non-Rachel sons, Judah, Reuven, Reuben, Shimon, Levi, etc., they are very jealous of, of Joseph because Joseph is Rachel's oldest son, and they know it. <laughs> he lords it over them. I especially appreciate you know, how you said that uh, his having two marriages is tragic because so often kind of snarky critics of the Bible or religion will say things like, well, polygamy is natural, or even in the Bible, there's polygamy. And the answer is yes. And every single time there's polygamy in the Bible, it's a catastrophe. Yeah, it really never turns out well for anybody. No, it doesn't make anybody happy. Nobody. And in this case, of course, Jacob was tricked uh, into marrying two different women, had to work 14 years, seven for each one. It's quite a story. But but the point is, is that he loves one more than the other, and it's obvious. And worse than that, he loves the children of that beloved wife more than the children of the other. And this creates this horrible tension in the family. And at one point in the story, a few chapters back, Jacob sends Joseph to, quote, check on his brothers. This is an ominous, strange thing that he does. Puts him in danger, of course. And uh, the brothers throw him in a pit. Uh, it's quite complicated what actually happens after they throw him in the pit. But ultimately, he gets sold into slavery down in Egypt as his people will eventually be enslaved. But he is the first one. He gets sold into slavery and ends up through this ridiculous set of good fortune and wisdom and maybe help from God, becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. And uh, we get Joseph in the amazing technical dream code, among other things. But the amazing part of this story is that Joseph rises to prominence. A famine is in the land of Canaan. Jacob, to his, uh, he's very upset about this, but he sends his sons down to Egypt to get food, not knowing that the source of that food will be his lost son, Joseph. So the brothers come to Joseph a couple of times. They have a number of encounters. Joseph is, of course, 17 years older than he was when they threw him into the pit and stripped him of his clothing and lied to their father about what happened to him. 
so they don't recognize him. Presumably he speaks uh, Egyptian through an interpreter, and they, of course, speak Hebrew, and he understands them, and they don't know that. So it's a very cinematic, incredible set of cinematic passages here, very vivid, incredible storytelling. And the great moment that we're about to talk about occurs when Joseph does this strange thing. He, he sends the brothers back to Canaan, to the land of Israel, laden with grain to deal with this famine in the land, and he frames his younger brother, Benjamin. He, he puts a silver goblet into Benjamin's bag, and then he sends his officers to surprise them and say, hey, do you guys take anything? And they, right, and they say, of course not. And if you find anybody, says Judah, the oldest, uh, if you find anything, that person deserves to die. And of course, they find something. They find this silver goblet hidden in the, in the grain, and they go back quite sheepishly to Egypt, horrified that they have been caught stealing uh, a silver goblet. The last piece of the story you need to know before we get to the, the drama is that Judah had promised his father, Jacob, that when Judah didn't want to send Benjamin down to Egypt, he wanted to keep him safe because the last time he sent one of his beloved sons out with the brothers, it didn't turn out so well. That was Joseph. So Joseph, knowing that he has a brother at home, but not the brothers don't know that he knows. He says, oh, when you come back for the grain, make sure you bring your younger brother, who he discovers they have through questioning. And and Jacob is horrified. Why'd you tell me I have a younger brother? And they say, well, I know he asked and we told him. And anyway, don't worry, says Judah. If anything happens to him, I guarantee you that I will take care of him. I will be his collateral. I will make sure that he comes back alive. And now all of a sudden, Judah has said to Joseph that if anybody stole a goblet, of course, to the to the officers, if any, please, if anybody has stolen a goblet or anything, well, that person deserves to die. And now they're trooping back to Egypt to this terrible confrontation, seemingly have having put their younger brother in stepbrother in mortal danger, betraying their promise that Judah had made to his father that he would take care of Benjamin. And now we have, I think, one of the most dramatic moments in all the Bible, perhaps the most dramatic moment where the brothers are with Joseph. And Joseph says, you know, I'll tell you what. I'm not going to kill him. I'm just going to keep him here. So go back to your dad. You know, it seems like an act of compassion. Go back to your dad. Tell him that I've put your youngest brother in jail. And uh, it's nice knowing you. And this is the moment where the brothers, as Rabbi uh, David Foreman writes in a recent essay on this, they could easily go back to their father and say, look, I know what Judah said, could say, I know I promised that I would take care of him, but he stole a goblet. I can't deal with that. That's not my problem. That's his problem. So yeah, he's not coming back. But instead, Judah rises to the occasion. And it's the second time he's done something rather extraordinary. A few chapters back, he confessed to having slept with his daughter-in-law when he could have had her executed, but he did the right thing and, and acted justly and said, don't, you know, it's a long story, but basically Judah acted incredibly, uh, with incredible integrity at that moment, admitting that he had done something really bad. And so this time he does something even braver. He puts his own life at risk. He says that the Parsha starts by Yigash and he approached, which is such an interesting word. It, didn't, it doesn't say, and he said. It could say, and he said. Right, right, exactly. It says, and he approached. And I think it's, it's important just to emphasize that now Joseph is with his, he knows who his brothers are. His brothers may or may not know, some may or may not know that Joseph is who Joseph is. And uh, this is the, the great moment of either reconciliation, death. Yeah, we don't know what's going to happen. And that word, and he approached, is so beautiful because... And so, yeah, and, and it is so beautiful and so important, we should emphasize it. And Judah approached him and said, 
If you please, my Lord, my Lord being Joseph, may your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and may not your anger flare up at your servant. So, and Judah approached him. Yeah, that's a very important turn of phrase. And I would just add that, you know, some commentators riff on the idea that he says, my Lord, presumably talking to Joseph, but he could be talking to God saying, hey, by the way, you know, I'm about to do something kind of tough here. Could you help me out? But it presumably on the surface level, it's just he's saying he's treating Joseph with incredible respect. Well, and, and also it's interesting when it's, it's two interesting things. In, and then Judah approached him. One is, as you said, why not? And Judah said to him, why approached him? And then the use of the word approach is very instructive because when we try to understand in the Bible, what does the word mean? We look for other uses of that word in the Bible and try to see it in context. And the word approach is actually used several times. One time in Samuel, it's used an approach for uh, battle. Another time in Joshua, it's used as an approach for conciliation. Another time in Kings, it's used for coming near towards a prayer. And uh, Rabbi Elazar of the Talmud said, this passage, Russ, that you chose, combines all three. He said, Judah approached Joseph saying, if it be war, I approach for war. If it be conciliation, I approach for conciliation. If it be for, for entreaty, prayer, I approach for prayer. I can't help but think of the word rapprochement, the French word, which means to to reconcile or to resolve something that was a source of tension. And so this physical approaching is really, of course, much more, which is why I think it says that rather than just, and he said. So Judah steps forward and he says, he gives one of the most extraordinary speeches in all in all of the uh, of Hebrew scripture. He says, basically, you've got the words in front of you, but I'm, I'll paraphrase it. You can read it if, if, if I miss something. But he says, you know, this kid that you've arrested that you're gonna keep here, He's our dad's favorite kid. He's the last, only thing he's got left from the wife that he loved, which is Rachel, Rachel. And of course, Joseph's hearing this as the older brother of this kid and the oldest son of Rachel. So it's ripping his heart open, right? Literally, this old wound of being rejected by his brothers, of having to go through this torment of the last 17 years, the love that he had for his mom who, who's gone, the fact that his father, has been without him for 17 years. I mean, it's an incredibly, is it 17 or 23? I can't remember. If I got that wrong, I apologize. But he, it, it's this incredible tragedy that he's now being forced to confront, unable to express himself. He's wearing, a, but effectively, he's wearing a mask. And Judah says to him, this word that cracks open, this phrase that cracks open his heart. He says, this is going to kill our father. If he loses this son, he says, he says, their souls are bound up together. And of course, Joseph can't help but think, yeah, but my soul was bound up with my father too. Exactly. So Joseph's thinking, and Judah's use of language, you're so right, is just genius. He's manipulating his brother in such a sophisticated way to try to get his brother to acknowledge that his brother is the beloved son of his father, just as Benjamin is. I think Judah knows, Judah knows exactly who Joseph is. Oh, really? I don't think so. Because I have a different interpretation. Oh, it's interesting. No, I know. I, I think he does because I think what he's so he uses in forty four, thirty three to thirty four the conclusion of what you point out is this great speech of the Bible. He uses the term father four times, and so I, I think what he's emphasizing to Joseph is father, father and Avi. Avi's not even like father; it's like daddy. You know, he's emphasizing the use of father so many times, telling Joseph if you disrupt father's relationship with Benjamin, this is your father. So he's putting his mind because what has Joseph done to his father in all of these years of absence? He has allowed his father to think that he's dead. It's not that far, even then, 
from Israel, where Jacob is, to Egypt, where Joseph is. Six-day journey. All he has to do is send a message. Hey, Dad, it's Joseph. I'm well. In two decades, he never does it. And what I what I think, my reading is that Joseph is telling, Judah, I'm sorry, is telling Joseph, you have hurt our father, your beloved father. 20 years, he thinks you're dead. You never send a message. He's just emotionally getting to him by saying, Father, you don't need to say Father four times in two or three verses. But he says it to try to bring this message to Joseph. It's a great interpretation. I disagree with, well, I don't disagree with that. I think it's, it's potentially right, but I want to give you a, a different take on it. By the way, Yehoshua ben Nun, the, the commentator, modern commentator, suggests the reason Joseph never sends back a message to Jacob is that he doesn't realize, we know that the brothers have gone back to Jacob and lied to him and said he was eaten by a, an animal. Here's his bloody coat. But Joseph never hears that story. So as far as he knows, his father sent him into danger. For all he knows, his father plotted the whole thing. And why wouldn't his father come look for him if he knows what really happened? And the answer is he doesn't know. But Joseph doesn't know that he doesn't know. So I don't I don't think, let's put that to the side. Yeah, that, that's a whole other discussion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Correct. Let's hone in on Judah, because I think this is where the, the drama is. I think Judah, I'm going to give you the argument that Judah doesn't know. I'm going to tell you an idea that I didn't have until I started just reading the Humash last night to prepare for our conversation. And it never dawned on me. So we've left out the full punchline. The full punchline is that Judah says, take me. Let Benjamin go. Take me. He offers to stand in after he's told Joseph that Benjamin is the beloved son of the beloved wife, not his own mother, Judah's mother, Leah, but rather Joseph and Benjamin's mother, Rachel. Judah says, take me. He doesn't say this to Joseph, but he had made a promise to his father and he's honoring it. He says, take me instead. Joseph might not agree to it. He might say, well, that's ridiculous. You didn't steal the goblet. I'm not taking you. And I would just add one more thing I never noticed till last night. Benjamin doesn't say a word. We don't have one word, I don't think, of what Benjamin's thinking or saying. Great point. And Benjamin, he's not that young a kid where he can't speak. He's not 11. <laughs> he's riding his own donkey. Yeah, no, he's, he's not three years old. Why doesn't he say, hey, I didn't do this. I was framed. That For whatever reason, we never hear any of that possible dialogue or his pleas to his brother or to Joseph that, hey, yeah, don't, I didn't do this. But at any rate, Judah offers to stand in for his brother. And this is the final thing that breaks Joseph open, breaks him down. And he says, clear the room. <laughs> you know, it's this amazing moment. And he cries, you know, his heart just overflows. And he says, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? And the brothers are like, you just imagine in, in my interpretation of our but in my interpretation, they're like, what? I mean, they're so overwhelmed. Uh, the emotional turmoil. First of all, here's the most powerful, second most powerful man in Egypt revealing that he knows that they're the guys who put him into the pit and almost killed him. They're scared. They're ashamed. They have a thousand. They run the gamut of emotions. And they, of course, are very upset. And Joseph immediately says to them, don't worry. This was part of God's plan. Now, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who recently passed away, extraordinary thinker and writer, argues that this is the birth of forgiveness because he forgives the brothers. I'm going to, I'm going to take a different approach, and I'm going to take now add a little twist to Judah's speech. Judah's speech, I would argue, is about him forgiving his father. We focus on Joseph forgiving the brothers, and I'm going to, again, I'll riff on whether that's the best way to think about it. But we forget the fact that Judah, who is... Leah's oldest son, he's been second fiddle to Rachel's sons for his whole life. His father favored Joseph, gives him the fancy coat. Joseph has these dreams. They're all about being ruling over the brothers. And of course, it ends up being 
true. He does rule over them in some dimension. He's in. He's powerful, and he has this chance to take advantage of them here, which he does not do. But the point is, is that Judah's been abused. His father favored one of the children. I mean, think about how depressing and horrible that is. He's grown up in a household where he's the firstborn, and he's gotten bad treatment by his dad. He's known his whole life that his father did not love his mother, or at least as much as this other woman. And as a result, he has a torn and broken relationship with his brothers, Joseph and Benjamin. And when he says, my father will die if we don't take back Benjamin, that's him saying, I got to live with this. I don't think it's right. I wish it had maybe been otherwise, but this is the way it is. My mother, says Judah to himself, was not the most beloved. My stepbrothers are more beloved than I was. And that's the reality. And I'm going to forgive my father. I don't want him to die. And I'm going to let him bring Benjamin home. And I'll stay here if I have to. It's an extraordinary sacrifice. Now, you could argue it's a strategic gamble. It was, a, you know, he's just rolling the dice. No, you're totally right. No, it's a beautiful sacrifice. So he forgives his father, I would argue. And then it looks like Joseph forgives his brothers. But I think it's not quite 100% as simple as that. And then we're going to go forward in the story to when Jacob dies. When Jacob dies years later, the first thing that's reported in the text is that the brothers come to Joseph and said, you know, before dad died, he said, don't hurt us. What? <laughs> he, he, he took care of him. He fed him. He gave him land. He got him. He moved him down to Egypt. They've been living together for a long time. As soon as the father, Jacob, dies decades later, the brothers think, oh, he's going to kill us now. He's only been waiting until his father passed away, Jacob, before he'd ex exact revenge and get back at us for throwing him in the pit and selling him into slavery. That's an extraordinary moment to me. It's often forgotten. Why would they think that? And to me, the answer has to be that over these years, when they've in theory been forgiven by Joseph, I don't think he really forgave them. He doesn't say, it's okay what you did. He doesn't say, I understand what you did. He says, it turned out fine. Don't worry about it. That's not exactly what I would call forgiveness. And in particular, I don't think Joseph ever put it down. He never just said, I got to let go of this. This is, this is harsh. That's a great point. I always thought that Joseph invented forgiveness in this moment. But what you're pointing out is he doesn't do the basics of forgiving. He just says, it's for another God's plan. But he, he never says, does not use the language of forgiveness. And the whole Benjamin goblet framing them thing is this weird attempt by Joseph, which turns out to work, to give the brothers the chance to atone for their earlier sin. That's very beautiful, right? It's incredibly manipulative. It's really kind of grotesque and ugly. But on the other hand, it basically lets them redeem themselves by saying, this time, we won't let the son of Rachel be, be lost. We will return him to his father. So in that, in that dimension, you know, it's okay. But my theory for why the brothers are not forgiven by Joseph is that what's going on there, this is just speculation, obviously. It's not directly in the text. I'm not sure Joseph ever forgives himself. Because Joseph, remember, he's the guy with the coat who's prancing around in it all the time. He's the guy with the dreams that he doesn't keep to himself, doesn't just share with his father, but shares them with his brothers. And the symbolism is obvious that he's going to rule over them and make them less important, less powerful. And it's got to dawn on Joseph that his whole messed up life, his whole arc of tragedy, redemption, tragedy. Remember, he's got his all kinds of adventures in Egypt before he gets to be uh, the right-hand man of Pharaoh, that this whole arc is his fault. You know, it's easy to say, oh, dad set me up. He sent me down. Didn't he know they, they hated me? But maybe he said to himself, I kind of deserve this. 
because I acted like a jerk when I was 17 years old and shame on me. Maybe he's never forgiven himself. And every time he sees his brothers in all those intervening years, once they've come back and he finds out who they are, he's just reminded that he was not the best person when he was younger and he could have been better. Maybe it's his fault that the family rift is there. And I have a feeling he didn't treat them well because of his lack of self-forgiveness. And as a result, they felt it. They knew that their relationship with their brother was not whole. And when their father died, they said, hey, don't kill us because it's pretty obvious he's been sending signals for a long time that he's not really reconciled to what happened. And I think that's this, this incredible trend. There's a hint of this in the, in the text when, uh, I don't remember the wording, but when Joseph takes Jacob back to Canaan to bury him in, in the land of Israel, there's this weird moment where they, I forget where it is, but they, it, maybe they pass the pit where he had been thrown into. They fast that spot and Joseph remembers it. And it's just, it's clear he's never really gotten over it, possibly. Not clear, it's, it's, a, it's a speculation. But, you know, the drama here is just so incredible. And the, and the last thing I want to say, and then love to hear your reaction, is that Judah becomes the source of kingship. There's two sources of kingship in the, the children of Israel. One is Judah, the other is Joseph. And some say there are going to be two messiahs, one coming out of, of Judah and one coming out of Joseph. And they are clearly the two great people of, of Jacob's children, of Jacob's sons. Jacob, uh, Joseph, for his maintaining his integrity in the face of credible challenges, Potiphar's wife's seduction, treating his brothers finally well and his father. And Judah, his episode with Tamar that I mentioned earlier, and now this one where he, he rises to the occasion. That's why he merits kingship. That's why his offspring merit the kingship of, of Israel, which includes you know, David and others. And I think it's a lesson of leadership that is so important. The, the, the willingness, first of all, to put yourself on the line, uh, the willingness to honor ethics and not bear a grudge, which he could have you know, done again, I would argue, against his father for the way he was raised. And uh, Judah really, I think he's, in a way, he's like the forgotten hero of the book of Genesis. He's, he's really extraordinary. And we focus on the more dramatic characters, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then Joseph, because he's the, the favorite son, and he gets a lot of airtime. But uh, Judah's really quite, quite special. You're right. We, we focus on Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, but we're Jews. Yeah, we're Jews. We're Yehudit. That's right. Our, our name comes from Judah. Yeah, it's a great point. Yeah, we're not Yosefim. That's right. We're not Yosefim. We're not, we're not Abrahamites. We're Jews, and, uh, and that's directly from Judah. And as you said, not only are we Jews, but the Messiah will come from Judah. Maybe we should study him more, but he does, he does get quite deserved credit. He's also the first person to transform himself. When, you know, as you point out earlier, he unwittingly um, sleeps with his daughter-in-law, and then he says, she's better than me. And he, he apologizes, he changes, he transforms himself. And in that act of transformation, he's thus qualified to become the progenitor of the Messiah and for us to be called Jews. But yes, he is, he is the man for all seasons in the book of Genesis, I think. It's an interesting interpretation that you have about how Joseph does not grant explicit forgiveness, as Rabbi Sachs said. Perhaps it's that so often in the Bible, what we see is the beginnings of an idea. So for instance, in the Daughters of Zalopakad, in, in the books of, of, of Numbers, it's the beginning of the idea of, of gender equality. In that the doors of the Lopakad say, it's not fair that we should not be able to inherit just because we're women. And God says, you're right. Now, they don't get everything that we would agree is fair from a gender perspective, but it's a really big start. And perhaps because what Joseph does say 
is he he doesn't say you're forgiven. He doesn't use that word. He doesn't use that language. But he does say, and now be not distressed nor reproach yourselves for having sold me here, for it was to be a provider that God sent me. So he does kind of begin the concept that we as as his followers and his kind of partners in God in this great human experiment have continued and developed in the idea of forgiveness. So if he doesn't invent forgiveness, he invented the concept of forgiveness that, that's, that we later developed. Yeah, I like that a lot. The concept of forgiveness, I think, is quite tricky. You know, when we forgive someone, uh, it does not necessarily mean what you did was okay. It means, which is, I think, what the way people misinterpret, that's to absolve. That's not to forgive. That's to absolve. It's not about absolution. It's about forgiveness is saying, I'm just going to put this down. I'm not going to carry this. And I don't know what, you, you know, I'm not in your shoes. I don't know what forces worked on you when you made this mistake to harm me, but I'm not going to bear that grudge and carry it around. Uh, and I think that's a really important and powerful idea. That's right. It's not saying it didn't happen. It's just saying, um, well, in that sense, this might be the first forgiveness because Joseph is saying that. He's saying, I'm not saying this didn't happen. I'm going to say, I'm not going to let it influence my relationship with you. Because that's what Joseph's saying. He's saying, yeah, you sold me to the pit, but that was in the past. This is the, the present. What happened in the past is not going to affect our relationship going forward. And that might be a definition, if not the definition of forgiveness. Yeah. And my my speculation about Joseph's personal issues with his own actions, it very well could be that he forgave his brothers. But because he didn't forgive himself, when he saw them, it reminded him of his own flaws and they felt not forgiven, even though maybe he had forgiven them. So I think it's quite complicated, the psychology and, and emotion of this. But I think we have a lot to learn from it in our own lives. And I think that's uh, the point of the story. Absolutely. You brought it up so beautifully. And, you know, this, this notion of forgiveness that you talk about, it reminds me, I believe it was the Baal Shem Tov, but I don't have a sight on it. So it might not be the Baal Shem Tov, but it, I think it is this beautiful idea about, he said on Yom Kippur, which he was basically talking about when the new year begins. I think the real Jewish New Year is Pesach. But anyway, at any point one considers New Year, it could be your birthday, it could be July 4th, it could be Pesach, it doesn't matter. At a new year, he said to his followers, I want you to take a piece of paper, write down all of the people who wronged you and what they did to you. I want you to take another piece of paper and write down every favor you did for somebody else. Now burn them both. That's how you start a new year. That's sweet. Right. I'm not going to think too much of myself because I did so many good deeds. I can you know, feel like you know people owe me. And I'm also not going to bear a grudge against the things that hurt me. Right, exactly. I'm not going to go into the new year disappointed, you know, that I did all these things for other people and they're not doing it for me. And I'm also not going to go into the new year with scores to settle and accountings and and he owes me this and she owes me that. And I'm a victim because, of, nope, burn them both. I love that because, you know, I think we spend a lot of time agreeing that bearing a grudge is not the healthiest thing, but that anti-grudge, the idea that, hey, I did something good for you and I didn't get enough credit for it. Or even better, you don't know I did something good for you. And I, it's killing me that you don't know. I want, I want you to know so I can get credit for it. And I think we have that urge as human beings. And when you can put that down and just say, you know, I just did a good thing. It's fine. It's just between me and me and God, me and my, my own self-worth. That's it's very liberating, actually. Because the alternative is basically unhappiness. Because if you go into the new year saying, here are all the favors I've done for somebody. If you give most people the opportunity, they will disappoint you. <laughs> right? So if you think I did all these things for all these people, some significant percentage of them will disappoint you and not reciprocate to the extent that you think you're due. And that'll make you sad and unhappy and bitter and angry. Those are all really terrible things. So what the Baal Shem Tov is saying, burn them both. I got to put a footnote to that, though, because, you know, when you say most people disappoint you, I think that's because we're not very perceptive. They disappoint us because we forget that actually they did do something for us, but I'm so self-centered. 
I forgot about that. I didn't even notice it. So we all often feel aggrieved when we're not, we shouldn't be, but we forget that we don't have all the facts or that we don't have all the data or that we've forgotten a bunch of the data. And I think that's a really uh, important thing to remember. Or, or what you're saying could be that what we did for the other person, we thought it was a big deal. It actually wasn't that big a deal. They paid that debt a long time ago in full. And I I put a gold frame around it and a plaque and <laughs> on the wall. Yeah. But your point about this, this um, Baal Shem Tov example that I really like is that it is in marriage because I think there's a normal human tendency to, quote, keep score. And it's one of the most destructive aspects of marriage and, of course, friendship as well. But but certainly in marriage, this idea that, you know, I'm so good to my wife or I'm so uh, she was she did that thing wrong for me. And I hope she recognized that and apologize, whatever it is. We just don't keep score. It's a mistake. So using Yom Kippur as a way to, to go back to the, the zero zero, if you do have a scorekeeping problem, is a really nice idea. But a better idea is even don't keep score to start with. It's not what it's about. So what, what might a critic of the Baal Shem Tov say? A critic might say, well, it's not fair. Like, I did all this and they did all that. And it's, it's, and it's like, it's not going to be fair either way. Like, you might, if you're right about that, I guarantee you one thing, your current scorecard is wrong. You think people owe you more than they do. And you think, you know, it's your, your current scorecard is wrong. So let's just start at zero, zero. And uh, you know what? You can be happy. And this whole idea that, that there is a score and that you've been keeping it mentally is so destructive for obvious reasons, but it's also so unlikely to be accurate, as we were alluding to earlier. You have so such imperfect information, not just about the other people in the story, the ones you're keeping score against, but also yourself. You've aggrandized all the things you did, probably, and made them grander than they really were, and you've over-exaggerated the wrongs that were done to you, and you know nothing about the shoes of the other person, almost certainly. And as a result, you've overemphasized the, the motives involved and, and created a narrative around it that you've dwelled in. And I think this whole idea of, of stepping out of that narrative, stepping out of that that scorekeeping is just such, it's hard to do. It's really hard to do. So the only, the only solution is burn them both. Yeah, burn them both, baby. Well, Russ, this has been such a fascinating conversation emanating from uh, from this incredible passage in late Genesis. And really, I'm, I'm so grateful to you for bringing you to the fore, the kind of unheralded hero of the Jewish people, ironically, Judah, Jewish people. But but yes, he is unheralded. I mean, he's, he's, he's not one of the top 10 people we study, um, but he, he absolutely should be. So the uh, concluding question of the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, the uh, sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he says at the beginning of the book, he said, I just ran into this man with whom I served in the war. He said, this man saved a lot of Jews and then became a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Russ, in all of your years as an economist, as an economic philosopher, as a public economist, and as a teacher of economics, what are two things you've learned about mankind? Can we talk about those for a minute? Absolutely. Those, those are so extraordinary. Especially, I, I love them both because the first one, the idea that people aren't as happy as they seem is so important, especially in social media where people complain that you know, everybody on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram looks like they have these glorious lives, when in fact, they're always more complicated. And I always like to remember this phrase. I don't know who said it first. Everyone's in a battle, so be kind. And there's this temptation to look at the world around us and say, uh, oh, they're happy. Yeah, they're, they're doing great. But we've all got this armor on to, to protect us and defend us, ourselves, our egos. One of the aspects of that is this idea that 
oh, wow, he looks so happy, forgetting that he's got the same problems that I have. And the second one, what was the second one? There's no such thing as a grown-up person. I think about this, you know, all the time. When, when you're a, a freshman or sophomore in high school, you look at the seniors and you go, wow, they're so comfortable in their skin and they're so sophisticated. They're so cool. Boy, I can't wait till I'm a senior. And then you're a senior. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm scared all the time. And, and nobody, I know maybe nobody likes me and <laughs> you don't feel like a senior. Of course, the freshmen are looking at you like you're a senior, but you feel like this, you know, we go through life with this imposter syndrome, this idea that, you know, I'm fooling everybody. I'm a, I'm a, I'm an imposter. I'm a fraud. I'm a sham. And I think this idea that, uh, we always have that is, is, is very, very, very powerful. And the gift of being comfortable in your own skin, I'm going to bring it back to the Jacob story. You know, when, when Jacob sends Joseph out into the danger of, of meeting his brothers, Rashi, the biblical commentator says, you know, Jacob thought everything was going to be sweet from here on out. He lived a good life. And God said, mm, I don't think so. He says, serenity, the Hebrew word is shalva. Serenity is not for you, not for this life. So this life is bumpy. This life's full of ups and downs. So I think that's a, you know, that's a, a very, uh, that's a very deep truth and a deep reality. But you wanted my insights. I guess the two things that I've been thinking about lately, or I would say one is that the world's a lot more complicated than it appears on the outside. Our brains are, I think, built for simplicity. What we we're talking about earlier to, to accept a narrative. And I think we fall into narratives very easily in our personal lives and also in public policy. And they fool us but they're comforting. We need them to some extent to interpret the world, to tell ourselves stories. But the fact is, is that almost always you've cherry picked some aspect of reality to make yourself feel better. And being aware of that is actually um, becoming aware of that I think is very profound and very helpful, even though it, it is unsettling at first. We should be aware that we're kind of evolutionarily conditioned to see the world in narratives. And to tell stories, to even put things in as they appear to be facts, even though they don't belong, to create a story. Reminds me of, you know, it's, there was a psychological experiment about which of the following two stories is easier to remember. A, the king died and then the queen died. B, the king died and then the queen died of grief. The second's a story. And it's, it's easier to remember even though there's more information. So one would think there's more information it should be harder to remember. But because it's a coherent narrative, our brain loves it. And it's cause and effect. We look for causation everywhere. And, and, and we do that because cause and effect tells a story. And we need it. We need to have cause by others. Otherwise, we can't really make sense of reality. Uh, and it's a very powerful and often really useful thing evolutionarily. And, and in, you know, even in modern times, it's really good to know what to be aware of and, and beware of. So it's not a bad thing, but we're not so aware of it. The second thing I would I guess I would argue is um that I'd say is important that I've learned is the importance of um, listening. You know, I have my own podcast, so I, I've talked a lot in this conversation because you're the host and I'm the guest. And I try, not always successfully, to let my guests talk plenty and to have what they have to say. And I think as I get older, the, the power of listening, I just want to say one thing about listening I think is underappreciated, and that's just being present. I think most people think of the act of listening as the act of having the right thing to say, because I've listened, you know, I, I heard your story and now I can help you. Or I heard your story. Now I can comfort you. A lot of what comfort is, is just being there and allowing the other person to be heard. So I think one of the most profound ideas in Judaism is that when you make a shiva call, when you go to the house of a mourner, there's this weird law that seems to be a bad idea, which is don't say anything until the person you're visiting speaks first. And one of the reasons that's a really good idea is that often people blurt out 
unintended cruel things or things that aren't comforting. And it's hard to know what to say in those in those very hard moments. But I think the other lesson, which is so deep, is that the purpose of the Shiva call of going to visit a mourner or anyone who's struggling in life with a with a challenge is sometimes the only thing that person needs is to be aware that they're not alone. And when you can give 100% attention to their story, when you can listen to their narrative with no ulterior motive, no, oh, and then I'll be able to say this and that, or I'll get my consolation statement in, or I'll, whatever. All you're there is just to open your heart to that other person's situation. I think that's an incredibly important part of the human enterprise that took me a long, long time to appreciate. And it's still a struggle. We're all self-centered to some extent. It's just the nature of how we are created. And the ability to put that down and to listen fully is uh, a wonderful gift to give another human being. Absolutely. Well, Russ, thank you so much for such a fascinating conversation on so many different levels, on so many topics, all emanating from uh, this great gift we all have, the Bible. So thank you. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's a blast. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatsawa and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.